Charles and I both thought we were preaching tonight, so, and then I asked Pastor, I said, so am I preaching tonight? He's like, what a question to ask the night you preach. (laughs) But uh, we were both ready, so we'll hear from Charles next week. Turn to Isaiah, we're going to be in chapter 24 and 25. We'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer before we get started. Father, thank you for your word and the opportunity to preach it. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit so that we may understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a, uh, a phrase in the secular society today that is going around, and I'm afraid that this phrase is also a way of thinking for many church people. And the phrase is very simple. It says, turn down for what? It's actually a song. You've probably heard it on the radio. And at first, this song is very catchy. And uh, I was kind of getting in the groove. You know, I love a good beat. And uh, there's only about ten words in the whole song. And four of them are turned down for what? And so Jordan and I started thinking, what in the world does that mean? I have no idea what that means, especially since there's only ten words in the whole song. And uh, we looked it up, and uh, you'll hear it on the radio. You guys are like, what is he talking about? As Paul Blart says, it's out there. Paul Blart Mall Cop. Um, So we looked this up, and the meaning of this phrase epitomizes the way that we think as humans. It epitomizes arrogance. Basically, it teaches that you can live the way you want, you can go out and get drunk, you can go out and be sexually immoral, you can disobey the commands of God, and at the end of the day, you say, turn down for what? In other words, Why would I stop living for myself? Because there's no judge. Isaiah is going to turn this on its head. This arrogant way of thinking, this turn down for what? He's going to show that there is a judge. And there is a reason to turn down from your lifestyle. There is a reason to fear. Isaiah 24 and 25 uh, teach us, that God's judgment will wreak havoc as well as stimulate praise. Now, those two things don't seem to go together. Only God can have a judgment that wreaks havoc and at the same time stimulates praise. The author of the book of Isaiah is Isaiah, the prophet. He was well-known and an educated man from Jerusalem. He was familiar with the royal court of Ahaz. When we often think about prophets, we usually think of uh, John the Baptist, those types of cavemen-type figures, you know, with the uh, bad haircuts and coming from the wilderness. And there are certainly those type of prophets that God uses. 
God is known for using those type of people in the world who aren't highly esteemed. But those are not the only type of people that God uses. This morning, we talked about a man who was very pivotal in the gospel message, Joseph of Arimathea. He was a man of the Sanhedrin. He was also a wealthy man, the scripture tells us. So not everybody that God uses is poor and disheveled. Sometimes they're rich and well-known. This seems to be the case with Isaiah. Now Isaiah, the author, was authorized as God's prophet in about 740 B.C. And we see this in Isaiah 6. Uh, Just as James Bond has a license to kill, Isaiah has a license to speak the word of God, which can also kill and bring life. A little bit of background as we come to Isaiah 24 is um, Isaiah was commissioned to a people who would not listen to his message. God actually told him this. He said, go and preach, and these people, you know, preach, keep on hearing, but do not listen. And basically, your message will fall on deaf ears. This is the commission that Isaiah had, and God wanted him to do this. And then verse, or chapter 7 of Isaiah talks about Emmanuel, God with us. And then chapters 13 to 23, God deals with individual nations and their coming judgment. And then we get to 24 and 25. And chapter 24 of Isaiah is dealing with a universal or a judgment that encompasses the entire earth. Not just the individual nations, but everybody. Not just Babylon or Assyria. Not just Israel, but everybody. So... This is written to the nations, but it's also written to the people of God, who, by the way, have broken the covenant. We see that in 24, verse 5. We're going to go ahead and read the first five verses. Since I'm covering two chapters, we won't read it all at one time. Verse 1 of 24 says, Behold, the Lord lays waste. The Lord lays the earth waste. He devastates it distorts its surface and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled. For the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, The world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few are left. The first thing that we see here in this passage is that the judgment of God will be realized by God's presence, not his absence. 
God's presence is the most destructive force known to man. We often fear, and rightfully so, hurricanes or tornadoes, as insurance companies call them, acts of God. Um, We often also fear nuclear war, atomic bombs, things that have a destructive nature about them that is beyond our comprehension. You know, an atomic bomb doesn't just break apart things and leave its pieces scattered. It vaporizes things. And yet, God's presence is of a more destructive nature than these things. This little apocalypse that we see in Isaiah 24 is reminiscent of the judgment at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. You have these people on the earth, or as Isaiah calls them, the inhabitants of the earth, living in such a way as they're trying to be autonomous of God. They're trying to make it on their own. And God comes down to them and disperses them. And that's exactly what's going on here in Isaiah 24. He is, in verse 1, he scatters its inhabitants. Another thing that we see here is that God's judgment is the great equalizer. We see that in verse 2. This is also connected to the apocalypse that we see in Revelation 20. Um, By the way, apocalypse simply means an uncovering or an unveiling of something future that God is going to do. So John in Revelation picks up some of this. And in Revelation 20, we have the picture of the great white throne judgment, where John sees a vision of small and great people standing before the judgment of God. God's judgment is the great equalizer. Earth and heaven, in Revelation 20, actually flee from God's presence, and there is nowhere to escape it. That's how serious his presence is. God is omnipresent and you cannot escape him. God is majestic. He is not a respecter of persons. In verse 3, we see that God's destruction of the earth is definite. In verse 3, Isaiah says, The Lord has spoken it. One of Isaiah's favorite names for Yahweh is the Holy One of Israel. And we have to ask the question, what does it mean to be holy if we're going to understand the significance of this name for God? There's a couple ways to think about the word holy. First, as it relates to us. What does it mean for us to be holy? And secondly, what does it mean for God to be holy? So, the first idea that we get of holiness is seen in Exodus 3. And this is where Moses um, experiences God in the burning bush. And God tells him to take off his sandals because the ground that he is on is holy ground. Now, there's nothing inherently valuable or morally righteous, which is the way we usually think of holiness, about that dirt. So a better way to think about holiness is something that's consecrated or devoted to God. 
So if you want to be holy, you devote yourself to God. And it's actually often precedes righteousness and morality. So you can devote yourself to God, and then God makes you more righteous and holy. Okay? The other aspect of holiness is that what does it mean for God to be holy? And um, this is where this is really what's going to make sense of his name, the Holy One of Israel. Because oftentimes God would say things and people would have trouble believing what he said, right? So Abraham dealt with this, the promises of God. Is God going to really make me a great nation? Ultimately, the scripture says that he did believe God. Um, God was definitely working in him because he was an imperfect man. And so we often struggle with that same thing. Is God going to give us those things that he has promised us? And time and time again, God comes through and gives us what he has promised us. Why? Because he's holy. So what it means for God to be holy is that he's a man of his word. And as you read through Isaiah, you'll see why he picks this name up over and over again. Now there's another aspect to God's promises that the people of Israel kind of like to ignore. God not only keeps his promises of blessing, but he keeps his promises of curse as well. And that's what Isaiah is dealing with. He's dealing with these judgments that will come to these people if they do not obey God's word. So when Isaiah says that judgment is coming, thus says the Holy One of Israel, he's validating that the person that said this is someone who keeps his promises. So if you want to treat God as holy, you will take him at his word and obey him. So what is the reason for necessary destruction of the earth? Well, verse 5 tells us, The inhabitants of the earth have polluted it. They have transgressed the law. They have violated statutes. They have broken the everlasting covenant. So this is all-encompassing because we have all transgressed God's moral law and specifically Israel has broken the Mosaic covenant and we are all in Adam broken the Adamic covenant and so the inhabitants of the earth are going to be judged because we have all transgressed the law. Something that Israel often dealt with um, when they were overtaken by a nation was they thought that they were overtaken for the wrong reasons. So you have Assyria, who was a superpower. You have Babylon, who was also a superpower. So when these nations would overtake them, they would often think, well, duh, we got overtaken because these people are superpowers. But what did God promise them? That if they were to obey, they don't need to fear these superpowers. So when God would send his judgment, he would have to remind them that you're being overtaken by them because you broke the law. 
not because they're stronger than you. I don't know if you've seen a picture of it. Um, you can go online and Google it. Babylon had at their entrance what's called the Ishtar Gate, and it was just magnificent. And so an Israelite walking up to a city like this would just be in awe and would definitely fear a nation with this much money, this much power, and Babylon was like that, and Babylon took them into captivity. Not only is the earth going to become ruin, but its inhabitants will be burned with fire. And in verse 6, it says that few men are left. And that's very interesting, um, because this shows us that uh, God has a plan that few are left. We pick this up in Isaiah 6, um, 11 through 13. God is telling Isaiah to be his man, and he's going to go preach to these people. They're not going to listen. And then Isaiah says, how long is this going to go on, God? And God says, when everything is destroyed, when I, have done, when I am done wreaking havoc, then there will be a few left. You can re- look at this in Isaiah 6. And there will be a stump from the tree that is cut down. God has a plan to save a few people. And he is going to judge sin in the world. In verses 7 to 13, we see that God's judgment also does something else. It turns joy into gloom. So when God's judgment will fall in, that, in the day of the Lord, as the Old Testament calls it, there will be no happy place. You know, when you go through times of trial, you go to your, quote, happy place, whether that's watching TV or whether that's just thinking about a beach, you know, something like that. But in the day of the Lord, there will be no happy place. And you cannot escape the terror by going to your happy place since the presence of the Lord is what brings about terror. Then there is no escaping a terror that is omnipresent. That's why in Revelation 20, the earth and the heavens plead from God, but they were like, we can't go anywhere. There was nowhere to go. God's judgment in verses 14 and 16 stimulates praise from the nations. Uh, This is just amazing. Um, They see what God is doing and they just worship Him in the east. God's judgment is all-encompassing. And we're going to read this portion. This is verses 17 to 22. Part of the reason that um, this is apocalyptic in nature is because of the imagery that we're going to read here. Let's start in verse 16. From the ends of the earth we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. But I say, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me. The treacherous deal treacherously, and the treacherous deal very treacherously. Terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitants of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees the reporter of disaster will fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. For the windows above are opened, and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through 
the earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack. For its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will never rise again. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. And after many days, they will be punished. God's judgment is all-encompassing. This imagery is very vivid, and it's pointing to an ultimate destruction of the earth and its inhabitants. And although it may be imagery, um, it doesn't lessen the destruction. Imagery is used to speak of something that's actually greater than the words it can portray. Um, We see this a lot in Revelation. God's destruction and judgment will also exalt him. We see this in verse 23. The Lord of hosts will sit as the victor. And um, it's crazy because in verse 23, we see God sitting as the victor on Mount Zion in Jerusalem after his judgment. And it says that the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. Wow. Our glorious sun, which shines so brightly, will be ashamed at the glory that Jesus produces, the glory that God produces. Only Christ can walk away from such divine destruction, and we will get to that. God's judgment should lead us to fear Him. So we have to ask the question, what is the fear of the Lord? Why is it so important um, to fear God? A son will often not obey the father whom he doesn't fear. Nor will you consistently obey your heavenly father if you do not fear him. So fear is a tool that works in us obedience um, because you obey a God that you fear. If the Lord is not your dread, then you either do not know him or you know very little about him. The Israelites were tempted to fear what the nations feared, like every other national superpower. So even we may fear Russia or China or even our own country overtaking us. Uh, But don't be in dread over these things. Let the Lord be your dread. It's interesting the scripture uses that. When we think of the fear of the Lord, we often think of a reverence, which that's what it is. But there's a lot more to it than just a respect. God is to be not just respected. But he is to be feared, and he is to be your dread. That's in Isaiah 8. Don't let what the nations fear be your dread. God says, let me be your fear. You are to be quaking in your boots. And then we move to chapter 25. And this is the shift. This is where God's destruction stimulates praise. So we saw how God wreaks havoc on a people who don't think he's coming. 
But God's judgment also stimulates praise. And uh, the only way this can happen is because God's judgment is just. The destruction of God is a planned event. We see this in one. Um, We know that God planned it, and we see this in Isaiah 6. He talks about it. We also see it in Genesis 3.15, where God is planning to crush the head of the serpent. And um, it's coming. It's a planned event. It's also um, for our glory. I think I'm getting ahead of myself, though. In verse 2, we see that the city of man will never rise again. So this is part of where this praise comes from, because the people of God realize that all of their enemies will never rise again. Specifically, we're talking about Israel here in the context. Um, But this also applies to the people of God in general. Um, This is something that will come at the end of time. And this is a future hope of ours that will stimulate praise. Strong nations will even revere God for his saving power that has worked against them. So people in Iraq who are persecuting the church of Christ, they will, at the end of the day, praise God. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The New Testament picks that up. In verses 4 and 5, we see that God's protection is greater than the shelter given by the fortified cities of man. So all of our safe places will be torn down, but the rock of Christ never crumbles. He truly is that safe place from the judgment of God. Because he, after all, is the one should be your dread. Verses 6 and 8, we see that through God's judgment, He will bring life to His people. I love this portion here because um, we saw in verses 7 through 12 of 24 that God will silence the celebrations of man. But then in 25, he talks about a celebration of his own. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain. So God is not against celebration, but he is against human autonomy. And if you find yourself in Christ under his rule, oh, there's going to be a celebration like no other. Human celebrations will pale in comparison. It is much better to be a servant in the house of God than a king of the earth. Um, Not only is God's judgment certain, but so is his redemption. Verse 8, Isaiah says once more, For the Lord has spoken. This is picking up again the idea that this is the Holy One of Israel. This is the God who keeps his word. This is the God who you can treat. As holy. In verse 8, we see that death will be swallowed up. Now, you guys probably recognize this. This comes, this is quoted 
in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. This is the original passage here. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Uh, 1 Corinthians in that passage also quotes Hosea 13, 14. So this covering that's here in verse or chapter 25 that's over the whole earth is the law that brings death and God is going to remove death because Christ fulfilled the law. It will be swallowed up in victory. And um, thanks be to God that there is victory through Jesus Christ because Christ has kept the law that we have all broken. In verse 8, we also see that human sorrow will be wiped away. Sorrow of divorce, sorrow of cancer, and ultimately sorrow of death. What a joy that's going to be when God comes back and gives us that hope, that rest that we so long for. The reproach of his people will be wiped away. We see that in verse 8 as well. What is the reproach of God's people? God's people often are seen as uh, the lowly of society. You know, it's like we obey God, but where's our reward type of a thing. Um, we seem to always be waiting on a God who doesn't show up. This is from a secular perspective. Um, but we know that God shows up. But in that day, it will be obvious to all. This reproach that the people of God bear um, will be wiped away and everybody will know that God was their hope and God came through. Um, in verse 9, it says, and, in that, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Romans 9 and Isaiah 28 also pick this up. He who believes in him, that is Christ, will not be disappointed. After God's judgment, God's resting place is secure. Verses 10 and 11. Because God's hand will rest on the mountain. Mount Zion, the place, the city of God. That is our security, is God's presence, which was also what brought about destruction. God is safety for those who are in his son, but terror for those who are not in his son. The unassailable fortifications that are in verse 12 um, God will bring down. This is like a mockery. This is a Psalm 2 mockery where the nations roar and the heathen imagine a vain thing, uh, but he who sits in the heavens laughs. Those unassailable fortifications, God's going to just wipe out. Um, we cannot run from God. It's interesting that God is going to bring them down to the dust. It's from the dust that man came, and to the dust he will return. 
So it's almost as if God's going to wipe out even the memory of them. We see this a lot in the Psalms, how the memory of the wicked is blotted out. God is just going to ruin the wicked. After God's judgment, the enemy cannot rise again. It's a sure victory um, because the laying low of the enemy is done by none other than the Lord of hosts. I love also that name of God. That literally means a Lord of armies. That's what hosts means. Our God is a warrior, and he is not one to fail. God's judgment brings about a reversal of roles. Now, we didn't fully get into chapter 26, but if you continue reading, we will see that the helpless trod down the mighty, and the New Testament picks up this idea where the last shall be first, the servant is the one who's greatest among you. God seems to just reverse roles from what we typically think. So the challenge for us tonight, we have to ask ourselves, what does God's judgment drive us to? This is the so what of the text. What do we do with this? First of all, it drives us to fear Him. It drives us to obedience. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The first part of obeying God is found in repentance and faith. But it doesn't stop there. It's found out in the, it works itself out in the daily grind of keeping God's commandments. We believe that a person is not saved by works. But a person is certainly not saved without them. This is what James picks up. This, is all, this um, idea of God's judgment also teaches us how to witness. God's judgment is coming. And this is something that we need to proclaim to people. This is an area where when I am able to witness, I often fail. I like to focus on the positive things of what God has done and what He can do through your life, which are all good. But it doesn't really strike an unbeliever if they don't know what they need to be saved from. So understanding God's judgment helps us be a better witness for the gospel that God offers to us. God's judgment is coming, but you can hide in the cleft of the rock. The cross is the ultimate display of God's wrath. And if you are in Christ, then you can escape this wrath to come. And you can be among those who are stimulated to praise instead of those who are driven to terror. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thanks for your word. Fill us with it. 